Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAN. The following paper was presented by Canon Professor Simon Oliver of Durham University and is entitled Teleology, Intention, and the Doctrine of Creation. This is the inaugural Telhard Seminar, supported by the British Telhard Network. You can visit their website at telhard.org.uk. That's T-E-I-L-H-A-R-D dot This seminar is held in memory of the Jesuit thinker Pierre Telhard de Chardin. Telhard wrote a series of best-selling theological works in the first half of the 20th century, in which he drew on his studies as a paleontologist in an attempt to reconcile the faith with evolution. The annual Telhard Seminar is presented as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series and is organized by the Center for Catholic Studies. What I have to offer you this afternoon is something that fits with Teilhard's own interests. Uh, one of his central and key ideas is uh, a teleological interpretation of evolution moving to what he called the an omega point, uh, the final end and reconciliation of, of nature. And so what I have to offer you this afternoon is part of uh, a very big project I've been working on for probably four or five years now. Um, and it really concerns a very, very simple problem, which is the idea that on the one hand, we perceive and explain things uh, according to their purposes. And we do so very naturally. So it comes very naturally to us to say that the whale migrates in order to breed or the heart beats in order to pump blood around the body. Those are all purposive explanations. And indeed, theologically, purposive explanations are absolutely crucial if we believe that there is an order to creation and if it is providentially ordered towards God as the, uh, as the ultimate and final end of created things. And yet, um, the contemporary natural sciences, at first glance, appear to reject the notion of purposiveness in nature. So um, I'll come on to describe uh, the way in which the natural sciences would typically explain natural phenomena, but they are un very uncomfortable, to say the least, with talking about agency within nature at a basic material level uh, and an orientation towards purpose. So it seems to me in the debate between theology and science, as it's been construed over the last 40 or 50 years, um, this is the elephant in the room. This is the, the issue that really is problematic. Uh, the, the nature of causal explanation and whether there is purposiveness in nature or not. So um, within that very, very big project, um, I'm going to talk about one particular issue, which is uh, conscious intention in human beings. So I'll lead into that, uh, that very, very big topic uh, to begin with and explain uh, in a little more detail what I think the key philosophical and theological issues are. Okay, with a very few, with, with the exception of a very few schools of thought in ancient Greece, ancient and medieval philosophers and theologians, particularly those who came after Plato and Aristotle, shared a remarkable consensus concerning the nature of causal explanation. An explanation is partial or incomplete, lacking full intelligibility, unless it refers to the end or goal of a substance. So, 
Here's a mind-bending sentence from Thomas Aquinas, which expresses well the absolutely foundational nature of final causes. Okay, whence it is said that the end is the cause of causes, because this is the cause of the causality and all the causes. Okay, so I'm just going to leave that up there for the next hour, while you all contemplate it and try and understand what on earth it means. Um, fortunately, elsewhere, Thomas puts the matter a little more succinctly when he says this, every agent acts for an end. Okay, otherwise one thing would not follow more than another from the action of the agent, unless it were by chance. Now, that will be a controversial claim today, but what Thomas and Thomas is saying here is that unless we have a notion of goals and purposes, we can't answer the question of why, why does the heart beat, and so on and so forth, and we would have no notion of any kind of causation if it were not for these kinds of purposes, orders, ordering towards final ends. So this is absolutely fundamental for the, for the ancient and medieval uh, view of nature and indeed uh, theologically the doctrine of providence as well. Now one way in which we commonly narrate the transition from this kind of medieval world of a figure such as St Thomas to the modern world beginning in the 16th and 17th centuries is through an alleged rejection of this kind of purposiveness or final causes in nature in favour of a material and mechanical pattern of causal explanation. So, to put the matter simply, we move from one kind of explanation of a beating heart in terms of the purpose of pumping blood around the body, the heart beats in order to pump blood around the body, thus ascribing a kind of agency to the heart, to explaining a beating heart in terms of electrical activity mechanically causing muscular contractions. Those are two very different kinds of explanation of why a heart beats. The former would be very uh, conducive to a Thomist worldview, to Aquinas' view, the latter to a modern scientific account. But we know that the history of theology and natural philosophy, or physico-theology, as it was called in the 17th and 18th centuries, is rather more complex because they didn't banish final causes altogether. Final causes are indeed <coughs> declared barren by Francis Bacon in 1620, except, he says, in the case of human action. But Robert Boyle, in his disquisition about the final causes of natural things in 1688, declared that it is incumbent upon us to look for the final causes of creatures, their purposes, lest we neglect their usefulness and fail thereby to admire and thank the author of them. In other words, creatures have an end or a goal, and the end or the goal is the use that we can put them to. Now, this created a lot of perplexity because there are a lot of apparently useless creatures. So uh, there was a French Jesuit, Noel Antoine Pluche, who wrote a book called Spectacle de la Nature, where he wrestled long and hard with the, the, the goal and purpose or use of woodworm. <laughs> so why on earth did God give us woodworm? What's the teleology of the woodworm? And he decided, of course, you'll have guessed straight away, 
that the, the purpose and goal of Woodworm is the improvement of international relations. <laughs> now, the reason why this is the goal and purpose of Woodworm is because Woodworm rocks the hulls of our ships. So we have to go to the French to buy the timber to repair the hulls of our ships, which I now think in a post-Brexit world that's soon to be upon us is probably a rather good thing. So Plush was... was so but this kind of anxiety about, well, if God gives us these creatures for our use, that's their purpose, their teleology. What do we do with all these useless creatures like woodworm and snakes and things like that? A uh, great deal of anxiety. But this functional teleology, the idea that things are there for our use, you know, the jump from that to the environmental crisis is probably not a huge one. It's very commonly made. Now, in 1728, a German philosopher named Christian Wolff finally coined the, the specific term teleologia to name a branch of natural philosophy that studies the ends or purposes of things. And we might think that the naming of a specific discipline which explains the ends of things, teleology, points to the significance of final causes or purposes. So we isolate and name this science, but in isolating and naming a, a science called teleology, this in fact, I think, is part of the gradual demise of such modes of explanation in the face of a very different metaphysics and natural philosophy. Because identifying a particular domain of teleology, even whilst still regarding it as part of natural philosophy, Christian Wolff at the same time helped to identify and legitimate, legitimate a non-teleological domain devoted to an alternative mode of explanation in terms of efficient or mechanical causes. So to cut a, a very long story very short, the science of teleology, now hived off by Wolf, eventually came to be associated with a particular kind of natural theology focused on the supposed divine design of nature. And then we get the teleological argument for God's existence. And then we get Richard Swinburne. So. Final causes were understood as essentially extrinsic to an otherwise mechanical nature. Purposes were thought to be applied to inert matter by the laws of nature, which were in turn decreed and policed by God. I'll come back to all that in just a moment. Now, what seems to be going on in the transition from the medieval account of purposiveness, such as we get in St. Thomas, to the modern mechanical cosmology, is not so much the banishment of final causes as the wholesale reimagining of causation, which result from profound shifts in metaphysics, in the metaphysics of form and substance. So one simple example of the change in the understanding of final causes can be found, I think, in the distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic teleology. Now, what does that mean? Okay. For example, we might say that the final cause of an acorn becoming an oak is intrinsic to the acorn. It belongs to the form of the acorn to become an oak. On the other hand, the final cause of a car is not intrinsic to the material nature of the car. It's extrinsic in the sense that it lies within the mind of the designer and the driver. So intrinsic and extrinsic. And this is more or less Aristotle's distinction between nature and artifice. Natural things have an intrinsic teleology, things like acorns and signets and babies, 
whereas artificial things have an extrinsic teleology, things like cars and photocopiers. <laughs> there are countless reasons why that distinction is helpful until it becomes hardened into a dualism in which final causes are either simply <coughs> exclusively intrinsic or exclusively in extrinsic. Now, for 17th century physico-theologians, all final causes in nature are, in the end, extrinsic, lying in the mind of God, and matter is purely passive. Hence, creation comes to be seen as a mechanism designed like a watch. The question whether purposes and therefore agency lie intrinsically within nature or extrinsically in the mind of a divine designer, cre of a mind, in the mind of a divine designer, creates real problems for the understanding of phenomena like life, problems which still concern the life sciences today. So let me give you an example of how this extrinsic-intrinsic distinction and the notion of an extrinsic teleology for nature starts to create problems. In her book, The Restless Clock, the historian of science Jessica Riskin puts the problem this way, and she says this, I think the biologists' figures of speech reflect a deeply hidden yet abiding quandary created by the 17th century banishment of agency from nature. Do the order and action in the natural world originate inside or outside, intrinsically or extrinsically? Either answer raises big problems. Saying inside violates the ban on ascriptions of agency to natural phenomena such as cells or molecules, and so risks sounding magic, mystical or magical. Saying outside assumes a supernatural source of nature's order, and so violates another scientific principle, the principle of naturalism. So the question of agency, which is intimately bound to the question of teleology, because agency is goal-orientated, remains important for the natural sciences, particularly, I think, when addressing the question of life. Teleology is also a key fault line between theology and the natural sciences. In any doctrine of creation and providence, some kind of purposiveness in the form of an orientation to the good will be central to an intelligible understanding of nature. By contrast, for many in the natural sciences, the rejection of teleology is of the essence of science because it constitutes a, true, a turn from any kind of supernaturalism. And this is more than a methodological choice or the mere bracketing of the supernatural. For many natural scientists claim that purposiveness is simply not seen in nature from any legitimate rational perspective. Yet it could be argued that it's not seen precisely because of the way in which the ontology of nature has already been conceived a priori. One might therefore ask whether science is blinding itself to fundamental aspects of nature that we nevertheless grasp very firmly at the level of intuition and common sense. Insofar as teleology is discussed at all, it's often of the kind which belongs to the field of intelligent design, which is a kind of extrinsic teleology that sees the goal and purposes of things layered on top of them. Whilst the ID proponents' heroic attempts at confronting explanatory lacunae in evolutionary science are to be applauded, it's not at all clear to me that the kind of final causes they propose are theologically or metaphysically coherent. 
Now, in addition to the question of intrinsic and extrinsic teleology in relation to agency and life, the question of teleology becomes particularly acute in the area of human consciousness and intention. And it's this area that I propose to discuss briefly in the remainder of this paper. As I mentioned a few moments ago, Francis Bacon himself declared that final causes are barren as explanations, except in the case of human affairs, because human conscious intention deliberates, it identifies <coughs> goals and purposes to those goals. So teleology comes to mark not only a potential fault line between science and theology, but also a fault line between humanity and nature. One can therefore also express the classic mind-body problem in terms of teleology. How can non-purposive, sottish matter give rise to the unity of intentional consciousness which rationally deliberates and seeks goals that explain action? Such is the problem addressed by, for example, Thomas Nagel in his book Mind in Cosmos. This book received some hysterical reviews when it was published in 2012, and I don't use the word lightly, they were hysterical, because of its proposal that only a teleological account of nature, albeit for Nagel an entirely naturalised teleology, would allow significant progress in some of the most challenging areas of natural science. In reintroducing teleology in this way, Nagel rightly attempts to subvert the two options most frequently available in the current debate concerning mind and consciousness. On the one hand, the alienation of the human from nature, so humanity is intentional and goal-orientated, nature is not, or the elimination of the human, as we intuitively grasp ourselves, via the proposal that conscious intention is simply an illusion, or merely epiphenomenal. The most interesting proposals in this debate, it seems to me, link intentional consciousness to wider nature by proposing a kind of goal-orientated appetition, desire, all the way through nature, mind from top to bottom, as it were. These kinds of approaches tend to avoid locating goal orientation in the human will, but find it to be an expression of real natures or form. So, Robert Speyman, for example, a German Catholic philosopher, writes this. We only know the meaning of tending towards something by association, that is, through our own experience, and not because we, as active beings, set ourselves goals, but because we find the direction towards goals beforehand within ourselves in the form of a tendency we can talk of external finality only because we have already experienced the tending towards as a form of the internal unity of living beings. So what Speyman is saying here is that it looks like our orientation towards certain goals really resides in the will. You know, I want that sandwich to slake my hunger, and that's the explanation for me walking to Tesco's to buy the sandwich. So it's, it's in the will that we find intention. What Speyman is saying is that actually it's far more than just the human will. It's actually deep within our substance that we find uh, a kind of more deep-seated intrinsic uh, orientation towards certain goals uh, beyond simply will, 
and decision-making right into the nature of the human person itself, including our material nature. So our experience of teleological orientation is not simply a matter of the exclusively free human will selecting its own ends in a way that's devoid of the determinations of base instinct or mechanical causes, but rather that our ends are given by our natures, by our dynamic substantial form, the internal unity of ourselves as living organisms. It is in our experience of intention, of, intent, of tending towards, stretching towards, <coughs> striving towards, that we find our most immediate experience of teleological orientation. For the phenomenological tradition of philosophy, intention is, of course, the defining aspect of mind. Mind is always intentional, it's always about something. As David Hart eloquently puts it in The Experience of God, <coughs> purposive intention is required even for the most basic activity of sense perception. So Hart gives the straightforward example of picking up a cup, expecting to drink beer, but instead drinking a mouthful of wine. The mental intention is met not with recognition, but with cognitive dissonance. One doesn't immediately taste the wine, one experiences only confusion until one's intentional orientation is readjusted and one can taste the wine as wine, as agreeable Sancerre or tepid Chardonnay. So David Hart writes this, the mind knows nothing in a merely passive way, but always has an end or meaning towards which it is purposefully directed as toward a final cause. In every act of representation, the intending mind invests perception with meaning by directing itself toward a certain determinate content of experience, and by thus interpreting each experience as an experience of this or that reality. The question I'd like to address briefly concerns how we might begin to conceive teleological mind to be present analogically throughout nature. Is there anything in the pre-modern conception of final causes that might allow us to think differently about purpose in mind and purpose in nature? Now, I've argued in a couple of other essays for the view that purpose is present in the form of appetition, particularly Aristotle's notion of horexis, that arises from form, even in the most basic instance of a material nature. I'm going to pursue that kind of line of inquiry a little further with respect, firstly, to Aquinas's philosophy of action and intention. We're going to see that Aquinas similarly considers nature to be intrinsically orientated to the good, but in a way that, although not deliberative in every instance in the way that the human mind is deliberative, is nevertheless an expression of the divine intention. And having examined Thomas's view, I'm going to turn to uh, another Aristotelian concept, hexis or habit, that's used as a mediating concept between intentional consciousness, between our minds, and wider nature. In the 19th century, the work of the 19th century philosopher, Aristotelian Felix Ravesson. We're going to see that habit is present analogically throughout nature, from base material nature up to mind, but intentional consciousness is, for Rabesson, the archetypal instance of habit. On his view, the habitual nature of our intentional consciousness 
helps us to understand the way in which habit is present all the way down through nature, like a spiral staircase descending to the bottom of a building. And therefore the way in which mind is never alienated from matter, not even the depths of sottish matter. The point here is that the primary desire that we find in intentional consciousness and the appetition we find even in base matter, what Rabbi Son calls will on the one hand and nature on the other, needs some kind of mediation. We'll see that material and mental horexis, desire, appetition, are mediated by hexis, by habit. So first to St Thomas. For Aquinas, as we've seen, without the final cause, there would be no agency, or at least no intelligible agency. The final cause is that for the sake of which an agent acts. Agency, however, is not restricted to intentional conscious subjects. It includes inanimate substances, even if only as instrumental agents. Aquinas notes that rational natures tend to an end as moving themselves to that end, whereas non-rational natures, everything from inanimate objects to lower animals, tend to an end as directed or led by another, eventually whatever gave them <coughs> form. <coughs> Ultimately, what moves things to their proper end, including inanimate things like rocks, is the divine rational art which is not exclusively extrinsic in the way that we might have a rational art that makes a watch or a car, but is also instilled within things by nature. So in his commentary on Aristotle's physics, Aquinas makes clear that nature is an agent, but one that doesn't deliberate. But as we'll see later with habit, this doesn't mean that nature is an irrational agent or one that doesn't act for an end. Quite the contrary. Nature doesn't deliberate for the same reason that a harpist does not deliberate when she plays the harp, because the determinate means by which the act is undertaken has become a second nature. We'll see that with Rabbeinu in a few moments. So Aquinas writes this. This is an oft-quoted passage from his commentary on Aristotle's physics, but I think it's a very important one. Hence, since nature has the determinate means by which it acts, it does not deliberate. For nature seems to differ from art only because nature is an intrinsic principle and art is an extrinsic principle. Hence it is clear that nature is nothing but a certain kind of art, the divine art, impressed upon things by which, so that may be a typo, by which these <coughs> things are moved to a determinate end. And this is the crucial bit. It is as if the shipbuilder were able to give to timber that by which they would move themselves to take the form of a ship. So in other words, if you take the building of a ship, this has an extrinsic teleology. It's a, it's a work of artifice. It, the, the material elements are put together by the designer of the ship. And what Thomas is saying is that the div divine creation looks like that kind of artifice, and it's as if, it were composed in that way with a purely extrinsic teleology. But in fact, God makes creation make itself. So he gives, it's as if he were to give to the timber that by which they would move themselves to take the form of a ship. So the teleology, the purposiveness of the created order, is neither entirely intrinsic nor extrinsic. It's a blending of the two. 
Now, this passage indicates that that primacy of the divine art over human art, and also their radical dissimilarity, even though human art is a participation in the divine art of creation. The divine art enters into the very being of things because God is the source of that being, and those things are thereby created. The divine art of creation has as its source the divine ideas. At the same time, the natures or forms of things by which they move and are moved are donated by God and are intrinsic to their being as creatures. In the case of human art, the teleology is more exclusively or obviously extrinsic, never entirely, I would argue, at all, having its source in the human conscious intention, which cannot infuse itself into the being of things in the way that the divine intention can. Now, the explanation of action for Thomas also requires the good to indicate why action tends to some ends and not others. An action is ordered to a particular end because that end is good with respect to that which desires it. So in De Veritate, his treatise on truth, St. Thomas describes inclination with respect to what he calls natural and violent motion. By natural and violent motion, he means... Um, he means, nat by natural motion, he means a kind of motion where that which is moved contributes something to the movement, to the motion. So by motion, Aquinas means any kind of change. So it wouldn't just be locomotion, a body through space. Uh, a motion would also include something like learning. Okay? Now, the, the motion of learning is natural to the human mind because as uh, the human mind learns, it contributes to its own movement towards knowledge and wisdom. Okay? So that would be a natural motion. A violent motion is a motion where that which is moved contributes nothing to the motion itself. So the classic example is simply moving a heavy object upwards. Okay? It contributes nothing, and in fact it resists that movement. All right? So that would be a, a, a violent motion. That's what he means by that distinction. So what he says is this. It is after, the fashion, after this fashion that all natural things are inclined to what is suitable for them, having within themselves some principle of their inclination, in virtue of which that inclination is natural, the child learning, so that in a way they go themselves and are not merely led to their due ends. So our students become self-learners. <laughs> we hope. Things moved by violence are only led because they contribute nothing to the mover. Unlike our students, we're not like that at all. But natural things go to their ends in as much as they cooperate with the one including and directing them through a principle implanted in them. Yep. Intrinsic. All natural things, animate and inanimate, are inclined to a certain end by the prime mover, God. So everything is inclined by nature to that which is intended by God, but the only intention appropriate to the divine will, ultimately, is God himself, who is by essence the good. So everything is by nature inclined to the good, for Thomas. To desire or have appetency, appetere, appetite, is nothing else but to strive for something, stretching, as it were, stretching, an important word, stretching, as it were, towards something which is destined for oneself. 
the notion of stretching is important because it suggests far more than a sort of general inclination towards something. Rather, it, impl it implies an ecstatic striving for the good in which something continually exceeds itself as it moves towards actuality. Such motion or change is a constant ecstasis as it actualizes its form and exceeds itself through its own nature toward the good. But the source of such striving toward the good, whether it be a plant growing or a child learning, is in the end ultimately for St Thomas the divine intention, the divine mind. Mind comes first. Now we should remind ourselves that what makes this intelligible is a very different notion of cause to the one that dominates today's philosophy and metaphysics, particularly in the analytic tradition, and it might help if I just point out this difference. That tradition will think of causes as events, yeah? and moreover a kind of spatial proximity is required if a causal relationship is to pertain between agent and patient. But the mover in the Aristotelian and Thomist view is not only that which is spatially proximate for the transmission of force, billiard balls crashing into each other, but that which donates something's form. For example, the mover of the boy is, in some sense, always its parents. Something's motion or change or growth springs from its intrinsic natural form spontaneously and immediately. Only in the case of the human person does the form, the soul, become also an efficient cause as well as a formal cause of something's motion. The key point, however, is that the ultimate origin of all natural forms is the divine mind and its intention for the eternal good. Now, before moving on to Félix Ravesson, the final remark I'd like to make about Aquinas' view of action and intention concerns power and the fundamental character of action the communication of form. For Thomas, to act is simply to communicate that through which an agent is in act. So power for Thomas is not akin to force. It is quite simply the ability to make a likeness of oneself by the donation of form. Hence, he says, every agent enacts its like. Such power depends on the actuality of the agent, all agency for Thomas is a participation in the eternal agency of the persons of the Trinity expressed in the begetting of the word and the proceeding of the spirit. Agency spontaneously arises from the actuality of the agent and is essentially an influx of form into another as it communicates a likeness of itself. That form is received according to the nature of the recipient. So a very simple example would be the form of knowledge which a teacher possesses uh, in, in actuality. The knowledge is, is very quick and, and immediate for the teacher who is uh, well-schooled in a particular body of knowledge, a particular scientia, because that, uh, that uh, form, as it were, is particularly actual in the teacher, it infuses itself quickly and deeply into the pupil. Yep. So it's a transmission of a donation of form, whereas in the, in the Newtonian and post-Newtonian world, action is much more in terms of force, um, uh, of physical ability to powerfully change the location of something. Yep. So, 
It's a very, very different understanding of what constitutes power. It's not a kind of mechanical power at all for St. Thomas. It's much more the power of actuality. So the influx of form may be, for example, reproduction or teaching a student. Human artifice will be a very different example of the mind communicating a likeness of itself. So the form of deliberative calculation communicated to, say, a computer is received according to the material nature of a computer and shouldn't be confused for that which first donated the form, a form that was originally held by nature in the consciousness of the mind. The, the computer will only mimic the agency that brought it about because communication of that form remains extrinsic to the material nature of the computer in a way that it doesn't if I teach another human being how to do maths. Okay? So the communication of form in reproduction or in learning is the transmission of a, transmission of a form or nature per se. Right. Now what we're still lacking in this picture of the transmission of form is some account of how the forms of conscious intention are mediated to material natures. In what sense is thought and conscious intention constitutive of nature as such all the way down? Can we give an account of conscious intention as being the formal and final cause of nature rather than the accidental product of a process that is essentially inimical to teleological intention? And that, I should say, is really the question that's driving an awful lot of Teilhard's work on evolution. One possibility is the philosophy of the 19th century Aristotelian Felix Rabesson, whose doctoral thesis, De l'habitude, on habit, I'd like to examine. I'd like to look at Rabesson's understanding of habit as the mediator between will and nature, between teleological conscious intention and material natures. What I hope we'll see is that habit for Rabesson is the concept that ties together Aquinas's conscious intentional agency with the agency of basic material natures. Okay, so on to Rabesson. His understanding of habit is an extension of Aristotle's concept of hexes from moral philosophy into natural philosophy and, and metaphysics. Habit for Rabesson refers to the way something is or literally holds or possesses itself. This is why religious wear a habit. Yeah? It, it directly comes from this notion of how you have or hold yourself. Okay? A habit requires an organic unity for Rabesson, which can both possess and acquire habit as a permanent way of being through non-identical repetition. Let me explain how, what that means. Rabesson is particularly concerned with how habit is contracted through change, given that creatures that have habit have a settled and permanent way of being, as a tree or a person, for example. So he starts his essay by remarking that if one were to throw a ball in the air a hundred times, it would still not acquire the habit of moving upwards. A photocopier does not have a habit because it is a mechanism without a unifying organic form, and re always requires an external efficient cause for its operation, an electricity supply, for example. A habit seems to imply not simply changeability, but the ability to assimilate that change 
which may arise extrinsically into an intrinsic second nature. So let's take a particularly clear and straightforward example of acquiring a habit, learning to play the piano. So to begin with, the movements of one's hands are deliberate, and they're the focus of conscious laboured reflection at every moment. C-sharp, B-flat, and so on and so forth. But after some months of practice, one becomes habituated to playing the piano. The music flows easily and delightfully. It becomes second nature. But one is not dulled to the business of playing the piano necessarily. On the contrary, the concert pianist is more aware of herself playing the piano precisely because this is the actualization of her potency, her power, her ability to play the piano and become the expression of her nature. So as consciousness loses itself with respect to will, in other words, I don't have to deliberate when I've gained a certain expertise in playing the piano, it just flows from me. Yep. Consciousness has lost itself with respect to will. I'm not willfully deliberating and striking every key of the piano as I play Rachmaninoff. It gains itself all the more in an awareness of its nature, of its new second nature as a concert pianist. To take another example, a bird doesn't deliberate about whether or not to fly. But flight is the expression of a bird's nature, and in flight it is most bird-like. Flight springs spontaneously, sweetly and delightfully, as Aquinas puts it, from a bird's nature. Now, one of Rabisson's most important contributions concerns the development of what's known as the double law of habit. It plays on this opposition between habit's tendency to dull our sense of the world, to be passive, and its contrary ability to heighten attention, to be active. When we become accustomed to certain experiences or sensations, for example, walking past Durham Cathedral, we are passive and fail to notice them. Alternatively, the non-identical repetition of movements, learning to play the piano, for example, become easier and the source of delight as they become active habits. Rabesson explains this by the example of two people who drink rather a lot. One who gets drunk and the other who is, like us, a wine expert. <laughs> Rabesson's point is that the senses of the person who gets drunk have become dull to the wine because they drink by a passive habit. <coughs> Perhaps they drink whilst watching the television or chatting in the pub to a crowd of friends. The wine expert is active. She looks at the vintage, assesses the suitability of the glass, alas, this is water, examines the wine in the sunlight, tests its bouquet, savours the flavours. Sensation is intensified by active repetition of the skills of wine tasting, and they're honed to become habitual in a much more active sense. They are subject to knowledge and judgment. So Rabesson says, activity increasingly reduces the element of affection and pure sensation and develops the element of knowledge and judgment. In this way, the sensations in which we seek only pleasure soon fade. Taste becomes more and more obtuse in the one who, by passion, 
is delivered over to the frequent use of strong liquors. In the connoisseur who discerns flavours, it becomes more and more delicate and subtle. The key point for Ravisson is that habit becomes a kind of mediator between conscious mental intention and the material. In what way? Well, when I learn to play the piano or speak a language, such habits become natural, swift and delightful. But this is not merely a mental habituation. The body is also involved in playing the piano or speaking a language. By the gradual acquisition of habits, my conscious mental processes are drawing together my physical, corporeal processes. I am, in a very important sense, thinking and being intentional and teleological with my entire body. More to the point, my body is in a kind of tense engagement with my conscious intention. My hands may hurt, for example, through constant piano practice. So the mind and the body are entirely one, and yet they're in a kind of dialectical relationship in the motion towards the second nature of being able to play the piano. Eventually, the two will settle under a newly acquired habit or second nature, a new formal unity, or, in Aristotle's terms, an energeia, an actuality. But the point for Rabesoy is that habit is a mediating category in the sense that it changes voluntary, deliberative movements into involuntary or instinctive movements by tiny, imperceptible degrees. It makes thought to be corporeal and, then reveal, and therefore reveals the continuity between the will, the mind, and nature matter. For Rabesoy, Habitual movements are intelligent or rational, by which he means that they are teleological, even when they cease to be voluntary. So every human function, descending to the depths of unconsciousness, is characterised by a spontaneous or unreflective intelligence. It's teleological in the sense that the organism's goal is its way of being, and its way of being ecstatically more than itself in the acquisition of new habits. So he writes this, ultimately it is more and more outside the sphere of personality, beyond the central organ of the will, that is to say within the immediate organs of movements, that the inclinations constituting the habit are formed and the ideas are realised. Such inclinations, such ideas become more and more the form, the way of being, even the very being of these organs, these material organs. Now, what's interesting, I think, here, is, just as an aside, is that the habituated nature of the piano player is, you know, just playing the concert piece, it's flowing sweetly and delightfully from her second nature. That's when thought has been communicated to body via habit, in such a way that activity is rational, but it's not deliberative. In other words, the piano player there, she doesn't need to deliberate about striking the keys. That, because it's not deliberative, it simply flows from her second nature. That habituated action is, strangely, much closer to the divine intellect, precisely because neither deliberates. Okay? 
So it, it looks like this is just uh, the action of sottish matter, but actually it's intelligent, it's teleological, but it's strangely non-deliberative. It simply flows. Okay. So the picture we have, therefore, is habit as present at every level of the continuum for Ravisson between will and nature, between conscious mental intention and the materiality of the body. It renders the whole rational and teleological in a fashion that can't be reduced to mechanical causes because repetition is continually non-identical and by tiny imperceptible degrees, plus en plus, moins en moins, how Ravisson puts it, issues in a second nature that whilst new is in continuity with first nature by the mediation of habit. So the thought here is that at one level, habit is deliberative and voluntary as one learns to play the piano, but the exercise of that voluntary deliberation includes the use of habits like muscle contraction, for example, that are not voluntary and are much more fundamentally settled. Habit mediates between these levels and mediates will into nature. What's true of human habituation from conscious intention to the base habits of the body is true of nature as such. Intention is present all the way down. The final degree of habit, says Ravesson, meets nature itself. Hence, nature is, as this final degree, merely the immediation of the end and the principle of the reality and ideality of movement or of change in general in the spontaneity of desire. What he's basically saying there is that our ability to acquire habits is indicative of uh, the nature of matter itself. Okay, It's not accidental and not simply the product of a weird thing called mind. This final comment concerning the spontaneity of desire is the answer to an important aporia for Ravesson, and it's actually one that has significant theological consequences. <coughs> to put the question succinctly, from where does the habit of forming habits arise? That's what I mean. Yeah? Where does the habit of forming habits arise? Ravesson's answer is that nature is suffused with a spontaneous desire. Or to put it in theological terms, it's always already grace which is the source of the will, the intrinsic and irreducible habit or desire of, called, that Aristotle calls herexis, which is nature itself. If habit mediates between will and nature and transmits rational thought into body through the acquisition of new form and the increasing predominance of the final cause over efficient causes, then nature itself is already animated by a telos that is rational it's suffused with intellect all the way down, even if it might not always be deliberative. This is manifest in and through desire, desire to be and desire to be more, for nature continually and ecstatically exceeds itself in the actualization of its potencies through motion or change. In the end, Ravisson sees that this can only be a matter of grace or the gracing of nature, because the establishment of nature's telos is not generated from nature itself, but is received in the act of its creation. So, final quote. Hence, habit is not an external necessity of constraint, but a necessity of attraction and desire. It is, indeed, a law, a law of the limbs, which follows on from the freedom of spirit. But this law is a law of grace, 
It is the final cause that increasingly predominates over efficient causality and which absorbs the latter into itself. And at that point, indeed, the end and the principle, the fact and the law, are fused together within necessity. The alpha and the omega, if you like, tails terminology. So to sum up very briefly, the question of teleology is central to the debate concerning the relation of the natural sciences, metaphysics and theology, it seems to me. It also makes evident some of the problems, one might also say crises, that confront the natural sciences today, not least the apparently irreducible nature of teleological explanations in certain fields. Try, for example, explaining the immune system non-teleologically. The problem of how one conceives a universe without a notion of cosmic teleological order and the problem of unified intentional consciousness are just two more examples of these kinds of questions. There are, however, many teleologies, and some are doubtless inimical to a rational and coherent understanding of nature or God. Whilst the so-called scientific revolution of the 17th century didn't do away with final causes completely, it did do away with some of the mediating and associated concepts which make teleological explanation intelligible, whether in natural philosophy or theology. And amongst those mediating concepts, one might include dynamic substantial form, or habit, or real natures. That's why philosophers like Thomas Nagel are right to point to the necessity of admitting teleological explanations in our understanding of nature, particularly if we're to have a proper conception of how the unity of intentional consciousness arises from material nature. Where I think he might be mistaken is in thinking that such teleological accounts can be purely naturalistic, that is purely intrinsic, with no account of transcendent intention which providentially binds the whole into a universe. For that, we need a blend of intrinsic and extrinsic of physical, metaphysical and theological teleology. Thanks very much indeed for your patience and your